generations to come. Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, November 16th at 1.05 p.m. And this is another edition of the Thoroughbred Daily News Writer's Room Podcast. I'm Bill Finley, your host, joined today by Randy Moss. Zoe Cabin, usually our partner, is on vacation this week. I want to remind you that you make plans to attend the Keeneland January Sale from January 9th to the 13th. January Horses of All Age Sale is noted for the high-quality broodmare prospects and short yearlings and is among the final opportunities for breeders to obtain stock as breeding season nears. I want to thank Keeneland for being the sponsor of today's telecast broadcast, etc. Randy, welcome. We can't get away from Flightline, can we? But that's fun. Uh, we could talk about him for the next six years, as far as yeah. I'm concerned. But, you know, I detect now there's a little bit of backlash. And, you know, some people are coming out and saying, you know, does he really deserve to be horse of the year off three races this year? Some people are coming out and saying that, uh, you know, does he really deserve to be compared to the all-time greats after having run just six times in his career? Matter of fact, the TDN in today's edition ran a editorial, a uh, op-ed. Uh, or a letter to the editor, I should say, from Gary West, not the horse owner. Gary West, the turf rider that used to work for your uh, paper, the Dallas Morning News. Uh, it was a little crabby, let's put it that way. But um, he said that he would no way he would vote for this horse for horse of the year because he doesn't want to reward the owners. And he said, by no means does this horse deserve to be compared to the all-time greats. Um, I've got a different take on it. I think that he does. I'll explain it shortly. But I want to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, I understand where he's coming from, and I'm sure he's not the only one with that opinion, although he might be the only one not to cast a vote for a flight line for Horse of the Year. We'll see about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, even the connections of flight line, we'll hear from Terry Finley later, are almost sounding pseudo-apologetic that the horse wound up, uh, in their view, uh, needing to be retired at this point because there was nothing else left to prove. Look, when you when you try to compare Flightline or any horse from this generation with horses from the distant past, like your secretariats and Affirmed and Seattle Slough and Spectacular Bid, it's always problematic because so much has changed between then and now. And even if you look at speed figure metrics, for example, it's really difficult to compare even using those because there are so many variables that, that you can't really account for. Uh, and one of the one of the ways that people have tried to compare historically horses of different generations is resume, is accomplishments, the list of accomplishments, the magnitude of the resume. But as horses are racing less and less often, we're getting to the point now that we really can't do that fairly. If, if, if we look at Flightline's list of career accomplishments and we use that as a yardstick for whether he deserves to be considered an all-time great, Flightline and pretty much every other horse that's going to come after Flightline that has the potential to be an all-time great racehorse would be disqualified because they're just simply not going to be running that often. Uh, flight line six times is is a little bit extreme, but that's mainly because of what happened to him early in his career with the injury to his hind end. And and then he had some other minor injuries that that uh, that limited his his number of races. But look, I believe that flight line did enough to be considered on the list of all time greats. The magnitude of what he did when he was on the racetrack, what he did in the Pacific Classic, what he did in the Breeders' Cup Classic, um, to me, puts him in the upper echelon of horses, uh, not only 
that I've ever seen. But, uh, you know, I, I think he deserves to be on the list of, uh, of forces of all time. Uh, he doesn't have the depth of resume, no, but he was absolutely sensational uh, during the races that we did see him. Another opinion that I solicited uh, for a TDN story, I talked to Ron Turcotte. And of course, you know, he's biased there because he was the writer of Secretariat, but he said something along these lines. Well, I'm not even paraphrasing this is a direct quote. Uh, he has not done enough, meaning flight line, for me to say he's better than Secretariat. He says, um, this is, uh, the horse is not raced enough for me to really have uh, be able to judge him. And, you know, I don't totally disagree with Gary West's point either. Matter of fact, before the Pacific Classic, when he had only had the one start of the year, and it, we knew then that he was likely only going to have three starts a year, I was prepared to take a similar stand. Um, I might not have been as strident about it as Gary was uh, in his uh, letter to the editor. But to me, a horse that raced three times in a year did not deserve to be horse of the year. With the Pacific Classic, I totally changed my mind because this went beyond how many starts he had. When To me, the horse of the year is the most special horse that raced during the year. Um, matter of fact, Zenyatta, that's the reason why she got horse of the year when she lost to Blame in the Breeders' Cup Classic when uh, Blame had very good credentials and beat her head to head. Clearly the horse that was the spectacular horse of the year, the story of the year was Flightline. If he had gone out and won the Pacific Classic by two lengths and came back and won the Breeders' Cup Classic by a length and a half, I would not have voted for him for horse of the year. I, I don't know who I would have, maybe Malathat, maybe Olympiad or something like that. But I think it, it the whole perspective changed because, you know, now the horse is going into a stratosphere that not only have we not seen in maybe the 50 some odd years since Secretariat, but we thought that we would n never see again. So um, I understand where Gary's coming from, but to me, he is a worthy horse of the year. Now, so far as how does he compare to Secretariat, you know, I, I'm Randy, I'm with you. There's you, you just can't even go there. Um, because, you know, that's like comparing Michael Jordan to a guy that played in the YMCA right. uh, shooting into a peach basket in 1941 or something like that. You know, it's just it's just too different. But I would say this and I, I, I've said this before. If you're just looking at so from a resume, correct. He doesn't even compare, doesn't come close to secretary. Matter of fact, he doesn't come close to maybe 50 other horses, you know, you go down, not only the ones of, of the great horses of the seventies, like spectacular bit and affirmed in Seattle slew, but Kelso, which is a horse that Ron Turcotte brought up. He said, my goodness, this horse won the Jockey Club Gold Cup five years in a row. How do you compare flight line to that? But you can only compare him to the contemporaries, uh, which would be, you know, Go Sapper, American Pharaoh, Justify. I think he is deserved to be called better than any of these horses. But, you know, if you want to say that you can't say he's as good as Secretariat, then no horse will ever be as good because we're not going back to those days. At least I don't think we are uh, anytime soon. So but if you look at raw ability and talent and mm -hmm. that alone, Again, it's hypothetical. We don't know what would happen, but I do think he is probably as good as secretary. Maybe, you know, maybe not quite as good, but I would go there. So, But that would be my way of take uh, my, my take on it. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to have it both ways in a sense. I agree with Ron Turcott that after only six career races, we can't say that flight line is better than Secretariat for the reasons we pointed out last week. Secretariat ended his career running twice on the grass and, man, demolishing the best grass horses uh, in North America. Um, and he ran 21 times, and, and we got to see Secretariat win two Horse of the Year awards. But by the same token, we are going to have to change the criteria for 
considering horses as all-time greats. We're going to have to transition mm-hmm. from from depth of accomplishments and total resume, total grade one wins and things like that, to the brilliance that they show on the racetrack when we get to see them. Because let's face it, if there's another flight line, if we're fortunate enough to see another flight line, let's say two years from now, let's say one winds right. up in Todd Pletcher's barn, okay? We'll probably see him run, break his maiden at Saratoga, run in the hopeful, run in the champagne, win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile, come back as a three-year-old, win the Fountain of Youth, maybe the Bluegrass, sweep the Triple Crown, then probably run one race, let's say the Travers, and then the Breeders' Cup Classic, and then they retired to stud. That's 11 races. I think you're being... I think you're being generous. I mean, justified didn't make it yes. after the Belmont. So you might, you know, I don't know. Again, we're getting going, kind of going down a, 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 off on a tangent here, but I don't know if, if we are lucky enough to see another Triple Crown winner in our lifetimes. I don't know that they're going to run after the Belmont Stakes. American Pharaoh did, Justify didn't. But, you know, for all the economic reasons, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep going with them after they accomplish the Belmont. So you're absolutely right about that. Okay, so Randy, racing has this huge problem. It can't develop stars because they're all retired going off to the breeding shed as soon as they become stars. Flightline, the greatest example. And like you said, I think you said in, in a, a podcast maybe last week, does even go back to secretariat. I mean, he did not run as a four-year-old uh, in an era where almost all great horses came back and ran as a four-year-old. Are there any solutions to this problem short of something ridiculous like making the breeders, you know, here, here's a solution, but of course it's never going to happen. Let's make the purse of the Breeders' Cup Classic $100 million. Right. Okay, problem solved. Nobody's going to be retired. We know that's not going to happen. Is there anything this sport can do, even if it is a little bit of a wild idea, to get these horses to stick around? I can only I can only come up with two, Bill, and I've been thinking about this forever, right? And I know you have too. Uh, I mean, for the last at least 15 years, I've been beating the drum about the possibility of a rule that is sort of now known as the Gural rule, right? right. Uh, Jeff, Jeff Gural, the the, uh, the harness racetrack owner uh, that owns Tioga Downs, Vernon Downs, the Meadowlands, uh, instituted a rule that at the major stakes at his racetracks that no horse would be allowed to run unless the stallion competed not only as a three-year-old, but during his four-year-old season. And there were some, you know, there were some uh, exceptions for injury and things like that. And it was a very controversial rule, and it's been revised two or three different times. But let's suppose that there was a rule that no horse could be licensed, could be uh, sanctioned, whatever, as a thoroughbred racehorse by the jockey club unless the sire was five years old at the time of conception. It's it's not an outrageous rule. And some of the breeders in Kentucky that I've talked to found it interesting and and thought that, you know, that as a uh, as a conceptual idea, it 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 could have some merit. Uh, It would have to be done. Internationally, it would have to be done in every major racing country because let's say the United States did it, but Canada didn't. Horses could be retired to stud, uh, could stand in Canada for their uh, for their four year old breeding season, and could circumvent the rule that the United States would have. Mm-hmm. So it would need to be done not just in North America, but I think you know Ireland, England, um, you know France, and other countries, major racing jurisdictions around the world. But that could could help solve. The, the dilemma of horses retiring to stud early. 
He would have to be, in my opinion, no exceptions for injury, because then you're opening a Pandora's box, right? You have veterinarians involved. What's a legitimate career-ending injury? What isn't? Uh, if horses were injured at the end of their two-year-old year, let's say, the um, would be unfortunate. But the owners and the breeders would just have to sit on them for a couple of years before they could then uh, be retired to stud. But that would be one possibility, I think. Uh, unlikely, because it would have to be done with cooperation worldwide. Uh, but maybe other racing countries would feel the need like the United States would. And the other that you and I have talked about briefly, uh, and this is a little bit more pie in the sky, and we can get into this a little more deeply, is artificial insemination, mm -hmm. which is what quarter horse racing and almost every other uh, competitive breed of horses in the world has sanctioned. Uh, it's the Wild West, as far as I'm concerned, in quarter horse racing right now, where it pertains to that. But that might also enable some horses to retire as a stallion. I say retire, that's the wrong word, to become a stallion, right? And yet still race for a year or two more while mares are being impregnated by them through AI. Okay. Let me comment on each one. And, and the Jeff Corral rule is very interesting. I'll give you an, e an even easier way to implement it if you want to do it in the United States. The same thing, um, the sire has to be at least five years old. Now, that wouldn't have done any good with Flightline because he was four-year-old when he retired, but essentially it's sort of the same as being a three-year-old for other horses because he missed his two-year-old year. If you could write, and, and again, I, I realize it's not going to happen, but you know, it, it's fun to talk about. And, and you know, maybe, maybe it is time for something. Um, I can't see the racing industry being that proactive about something like this. Maybe it is time for that to happen. Um, but right into the conditions of the three triple crown races and the Breeders' Cup race, excluding horses, whose sires were um, under the age of five, four, four or younger. Right then and there, that would solve the problem. All you have to do is get the Breeders' Cup, the three Triple Crown tracks to agree with it. Now, you could still run in the Travers, of course. You could still run in the Haskell. You could run in the, um, you know, the Florida Derby. But nobody's going to want to buy a horse knowing that it's not eligible for the Triple Crown or the Breeders' Cup. You get together and do that. You will not see any horses retire prematurely after their three-year-old season due to uh, anything other than injury. And I do agree with you. Uh, and Garal has led horses that um, be sires after the, 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 they come to them and say the horse was injured. I, I agree with you. That is a slippery slope because, you know, what is, uh, you know, you just go in the word of a veterinarian. How, how do you handle all that? Um, so far as artificial insemination, um, again, that's something I don't think is going to happen. Um, but you make a very good point that I'll go back to harness racing. The best harness horse in the sport this year is a horse by the name of Bulldog Hanover. He's going to be horse of the year. He's already got that clinched. Uh, he has the fastest time for uh, in the history of harness racing with a 145 and four mile. Uh, they kind of made him to be the flight line of harness racing this year. He's a four-year-old. In between his three and four-year-old season, he was bred. Artificial insemination to so 89 mares. So they had their cake and eat it too. If you do this in Europe, like in Sweden, where harness racing is huge, it happens all. Matter of fact, it's almost uh, it's almost the norm rather than the exception. And Randy, didn't you tell me that you've covered some equestrian sports for NBC where you've seen horses compete against their offspring? Yeah. Show jumpers in particular, Bill, show jumping horses really don't hit their peak in terms of uh, competitive excellence until they're at least eight years old. And even even older, I mean, you, you see really top level competitive show jumpers at age 10, 11, 12, uh, and they're bred at a younger age. 
and and you, and you do see horses like that competing against their offspring. Um, it, it, interesting what you point out about harness racing. I don't know that much about harness racing. Quarter horse racing uh, began using artificial insemination in 1997. And one of the greatest quarter horses of all time, sort of like the, uh, when it comes to pedigree, sort of like the native dancer of quarter horse racing, was a horse called Dash for Cash. Right. Um, when Dash for Cash was retired, well, when they were considering retiring him to breed him at the end of his three-year-old season, in which he won the, uh, the quarter horse championship, his owner, B.F. Phillips, decided that he what he wasn't quite ready to syndicate him until he knew that the horse was fertile, et cetera, et cetera. So he he took some uh, you know some artificial insemination from Dash for Cash, bred him to some mares, brought him back to run again, and he won the the uh, the National Quarter Horse Championship again at age four, and then they officially retired him to stud after that. So it has been done before it. There's a slippery slope here as well. Uh, quarter horse racing had a problem with uh, genetic diversity because too many popular stallions were siring too many horses. So there would have to be a limit, uh, no doubt to the number of, uh, of foals that a, uh, that a stallion could sire if it was done in thoroughbred racing through artificial insemination. And another point that, that, that's brought up against AI is that it it would disrupt the economics of the thoroughbred business, let's say in a state like Kentucky. Right now, obviously, Kentucky has almost all the top stallions in the country. And if a broodmare owner wants to breed his mare to one of those stallions uh, and they are not located in the state of Kentucky, there's transportation to get to Kentucky, there's boarding for his mare to be boarded in Kentucky. And there are all sorts of little ancillary uh, industries that have sprouted up in the state of Kentucky around the economics of breeding and the economics of stud farms that would be disrupted if stallions could be anywhere and if broodmares could be anywhere. So that would have to be addressed as well. Um, it's, it's probably not going to happen. I, I think you're right. Uh, but it is at least one possibility to consider if you want to try to keep some top, top stallion prospects on right. the racetrack a year or two longer. I, I think the big uh, the reason why the jockey club, I, I believe, would, would be against this. And we, I know that, that they are is because the fear that there would be uh, flight line. Uh, uh, Terry Finley is going to tell us a little bit later in the show. I think that uh, he was planning to bring him to one hundred and sixty mayors. Maybe, maybe that was the idea. Right. Um, but that. Flight line, flight line into mischief, gun runner with all 500 mares would be bred to them if you have artificial insemination, and that would affect the diversity of, of the breed. But I don't think that would happen because of the price tag on these stallions. And, you know, at $200,000 for flight line, and by the way, that is the, the stud fee that's new since we did last week's um, podcast. I don't believe there would be 500 people that were willing to put up $200,000 to breed to them. They might have a little bit larger books, but I don't think uh, it would get into the stratosphere or get into a point where in, in some way, shape or form, it, it is affecting the diversity of the breed. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that, that, you know, 
why not? I, I guess is my, my question. And, and I know what you said about the, you know, the people, I don't want to see people lose their livelihoods, but you know, it, it seems like a minor, the people that are shipping the mayors back and forth, that seems like a minor problem considering, um, you know, what we're talking about. I think the main reason why we don't do it in a thoroughbred racing is because we, you know, it's tradition. And sometimes, you know, when you have problems, tradition is the last thing you should rely on. You should look to reinvent yourself. And this would be a good way of doing it. Yeah. There would have to be, I think there would have to be rules in place. I think there would have to be a cap on the number of, uh, of, of semen samples, for example, that, that could be shipped out from any particular stallion. And in quarter horse racing, you know what AI has created? And this is really something that a lot of thoroughbred people don't realize. There is a huge push in the area of embryo transfers. Right. You can take a top class broodmare and you can inseminate her early in the year, right? As soon as she becomes pregnant, you can transfer the embryo to another mare to carry. And there are mares who are bred up to three times during each calendar year. They'll have three foals that are genetically their foals that are just carried to term by other mares. And a lot of these top class brood mares will retire, will be pensioned, having never carried a foal to term. Mm -hmm. Which right. is safer for the broodmare, obviously, because foaling and all that can can create a lot of health risks. Um, but I mean, do we want a thoroughbred industry where you know beholder can can uh, can have three offspring a year as opposed to one? I mean, that's another thing. Right. Yeah. Right. On Tuesday, Keeneland ended its ninth session of the November breeding stock sale with cumulative sales through Tuesday of two hundred and ten million dollars. Now, on the same day one year ago after the ninth session, the sales were just under 199 million. So the Keeneland sales so far, the breeding stock sale is up approximately 6%. And keep in mind, those numbers do not include the $4.6 million that was brought in from the sale of 2.5% of Flightline. Now, Wednesday will be the final day of the November breeding stock sale, but the sale will continue one more day. November Keeneland will with the Horses of Racing Age sale, a one-day sale whose catalog just continues to grow. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is racing. This beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar, reminding us why, for the love of the horse, for generations to come. He was just put together like a machine, and he had a great mind. Everything about him was what you'd want. Tis the love, pops the cork and the champagne. Tis the law is going to win the first leg of the Triple Crown. I've never seen him get tired. Respect the law, tis the law. His structure is just perfect. His bone is perfect. He's left the others behind. He's going to win the run, Happy Travers. He's everything you would look for in a horse. The TD and Riders Room is brought to you by Coolmore. Jack Christopher has now been officially retired to stud at Ashford. He's a former TD and rising star, a three-time grade one winner. And Jack Christopher will stand alongside his sire, Munnings, for an introductory fee of $45,000. The other new stallions at Ashford are the Speedy Golden Pal, Preakness winner, early voting, and Breeders' Cup juvenile winner, 
Corniche. And by the way, Tis the Law's first crop of weanlings did very well at the Keeneland November sale. His top colt brought $270,000 and he had other top prices of $190,000 and $160,000. Randy, I call him the hardest working horse in horse racing. That's Beverly Park. And we haven't talked about him on the podcast. I was hoping he would win the claiming crown on Saturday. Uh, he ran fourth. He ran well. This what a cool horse he is. And if you don't know the story, He's owned and trained by a trainer by the name of Norman Cash. He goes by the name Lynn. He's relatively new to the game. And basically, uh, he goes against all conventional wisdom about all the things we've been talking about, how horses don't run enough, take five, six, seven, eight weeks off in between starts. Beverly Park in the Claiming Crown was making his 26th start of the year. That means he's averaged a start every 12.15 days. And it's paid off. He's won 12 times. He's made $255,000. No horse in the sport has run more times and no horse has won more races. Matter of fact, the horse with the most wins behind him is eight. He's basically got that wrapped up for most wins of the year. What I like about this story is here's a guy who's coming in and, you know, he didn't get the memo. No one, they forgot to tell him he's new to the game. They forgot to tell him, oh, by the way, Lynn, you can't, you got to give these horses at least a month off in between races, if not more. And I've talked to him. He says, I'm in a business. I'm trying to make money. This is the way to make money. Run these horses as much as possible. I'm not going to do anything when they're not, when they're hurt, when they're not right. But if they're right, I'm going to run them. He takes the horses. And it's not just um, Beverly Park. That's the flagship of his stable. But every horse he has, you can see, has run 14 times this year, 15 times this year. I give this guy a lot of credit. And when he says he's making decent money doing this, I totally believe him. I just wonder why other people don't do this. Uh, you know, he is really setting an example for how you can make money with a horse, especially with these purses out there these, this day and age. This horse runs in starter and allowance races all up and down the East Coast, goes all over the place, the Midwest. He trucks him around. I give this guy a lot of credit. What a cool horse this is. Just it, it, it's such an anachronism right now in the sport. I mean, look, this was 19 times this year alone. Well, not this year alone. 19 times since Lynn Cash claimed this horse, August 5th, 2021. He's brought Beverly Park back with a rest of 13 days or less. All right. So in a little more than a year, he's done it 19 times during that exact same time period, August 2021 to now. Todd Pletcher, for example, I just bring up Todd Pletcher just because, you know, he's a top trainer. Others would probably have close to the same stats. Todd Pletcher has run 392 different horses during that period of time. He has run horses back on 13 days or less rest twice. And here, here Beverly Park has done it 19 times. during. The, he's run at 13 different racetracks. And his philosophy, Lynn Cash's philosophy is pretty simple. He said, look, most trainers would give this horse a workout every seven to nine days. Right. You get no money for working. He said, I thought, you know, since there's so many starter races up and down the East Coast that this horse is eligible to run in, mostly $5,000 starter races, uh, why not just run him for money instead of working him for free? And so far, it has paid off handsomely. And as long as the horse stays healthy, more power to him. As long as he's not endangering the horse in any way. And heck, the horse has won, as you said, 22 races this year. So it looks like the horse is enjoying his job as well. It, it's nice to see somebody doing something, uh, marching to the beat of their own drum, so to speak. There's more than one way to train these racehorses. Even the top trainers in the business will tell you that. 
Yeah, I mean, I just scratched my head. I mean, I didn't expect Flightline to run 26 times a year, but, you know, it's just, to me, you know, how are you going to make money for your owners? Well, the more you run, the more money you're going to make. And if I were an owner, um, you know, it says, I want my pace, my trainer so patient. Oh, you know, Joe is the most patient guy. If, if I had a big stable of horses, I'd want to find the most impatient trainer out there. The, you know, I'd say to the guy, look, I, I want you to be like Lynn Cash. If there's a race coming up in the condition book and the horse is healthy, I want you to run in it. And, you know, does this translate into, you know, top class grade one horses? Maybe not necessarily, but, you know, and, and he's, maybe this horse is a little bit unique. I don't know how many horses could stand up to this kind of kind of schedule, but he shows no signs whatsoever of wearing him down either. Randy, I mean, he just goes out there. I mean, he's not entered yet for anything um, past uh, that I've seen so far here on Wednesday. But if there's a race in the condition book at any racetrack within maybe eight, nine hundred miles of where he is stabled, especially a starter allowance race, he's going to be in that race. That's why he goes to all these different tracks. And, you know, I just wish because I hate that horses don't run more often than they do. I just hate it. So I give this guy all the credit in the world. I just wish somebody else would be paying attention to this. And, you know, maybe Chad Brown, who may not even know who Norman Lynn Cash is, saying, you know what? I'm running my horses four times a year. I can make Mr. Clareman and Mr. Brandt a lot more money if I run them eight times a year. That's all I'm asking for. I'm not asking for them to run 26 times. I just want them to realize you don't have to give a horse eight weeks off in between starts. When you and I were about the same age, when we were both getting into racing, um, you know, we're not talking about the 1920s. A lot of horses, matter of fact, more horses would do this than horses that would run, um, you know, four or five times a year as long as they were healthy. It worked fine then. I don't believe the breed has changed that much that horses are incapable of doing what they did in the 1970s. Used to be like you had those horses that run every single Saturday if they put up a, a you know 10 claimer in the book at your local racetrack. And it was great to see. Um, so again, uh, hats off and, and kudos to Norman Lynn Cash. Maybe I should vote for him for the Eclipse Award. What do you think? Show you how much times have changed. I got some handicapping books over here on my shelf from the uh, early to mid 1970s. They just say conclusively, you know, never bet a horse who hasn't raced in the past 30 days. Well, if you were doing that now, right. uh, you would disqualify a lot of horses. Calendar year 2022 alone, this horse has run at Oakland Park, Turfway Park, uh, Mahoning Valley, Thistledown, Monmouth, Belterra Park, Delaware, Colonial, Laurel, Timonium, Charlestown, Keeneland, and now most recently the Claiming Crown where he finished fourth at Churchill Downs. Uh, go Beverly, go. Pulling for him. Yeah, good, good, good for him. Hey, an interesting story out of Gulfstream earlier this week. There was pool manipulation in, in the first race of Gulfstream on November 11th. Um, the Quinella combining an even money shot over a four to one shot. The Quinella paid $42.40 for the Exacta with the same two horses, which should pay roughly twice as much as the Quinella paid $18.60. Now, what happened there? There was pool manipulation. And by that, what I mean, what people, we've seen this before. People have done it with like show bets. Um, you, if you bet a lot of money on a horse or a combination of the Quinella that you know is not going to come in. And so somebody bet roughly $18,000 on Quinellas involving a 43 to one shot. There's a tiny, it's a tiny pool at Gulfstream. The Quinella. I didn't even know Gulfstream had Quinellas, to be honest with you. I didn't either. And then what you do, what you do is you bet with one of these offshore joints, which books the bet. So, you know, they took the offshore guys for a ride here. 
you know, what is a even money over four to one Quinella probably ought to pay about seven, eight dollars, something like that. Paid forty two dollars. I don't know how much was bet offshore, but it is an angle and it's kind of a wise guy thing. I can't believe the offshore uh, bookmakers are um, uh, would even accept a bet like that. But apparently they do. So somebody made a big score. But, you know, you don't want to see this sort of thing. It, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. It wonders. It makes you wonder if anything else was going on. And to their credit. Gulfstream and the Stronach Group immediately after this happened said no more Quinellas, and that that was the answer. I believe there was only four thousand dollars or uh, in the pool, in the Quinella pool, in a normal Quinella pool, and if somebody bet this eighteen thousand, but uh, you know it's something you don't like to see. I give Gulfstream credit. I also kind of you know I, I don't have a big problem with this happening though, a huge problem because they took bookies for a ride. What's wrong with that? You know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear how much money was actually made uh, offshore uh, as a result of this uh, apparent escapade. You would think that offshore companies would be screaming the loudest about this because they're the ones right. that are really getting victimized. Um, but it, it's very difficult to police, obviously. It's very difficult to differentiate uh, as it's happening Right. A bet that's being made for nefarious reasons or a bet that's being made because someone legitimately thinks that a long shot has a chance to win and and they're going to they have the money and the funds to make a big bet. Uh, it only happens the pool manipulation typically at low to mid level tracks where the pools are smaller uh, because it would take too much money to manipulate the pool uh, for a normal size pool or at major racetracks like Gulfstream that have bets like the Quinella that very few people partake in. So this is a very, uh, very interesting phenomenon and something that uh, I'm like you, I'm glad that uh, that Gulfstream and first racing have been all over uh, as a result. Yeah. And the other thing they normally, you know, and I don't know how you stop this in the future, but, you know, you have some of these tracks, um, you know, especially like a harness track might, in the show pool might have two or three hundred dollars in the show pool. You could come in and bet five thousand to show on a ninety nine to one shot knowing the horse has almost no chance of getting into the money. And you might get a favorite uh, to come in and, and pay $16, $17 to show. Then you bet $10,000 offshore um, on, the, on that horse. Uh, you know, look at the kind of score you're going to make. I, I do find it amazing, though, that like we said before, that you know the uh, offshore bookies would uh, put themselves in a position where they could victimize by this. You'd think they'd be a little bit sharper than that. They wouldn't take the action. But uh, you know, the end result is you know, there's no point having a Quinella at any racetrack or any bet where the handle is going to be in the $4,000 neighborhood. Um, you know, sometimes, especially the daily doubles, sometimes you see that at mid-level tracks, there might only be three or $4,000 in the pool type of thing. Um, so that was the answer. And that's the way they solved this. So good for Gulfstream and congratulations to the betters out there that made a huge score, I guess. Can I tell you a quick and humorous story about my involvement mm -hmm. once upon a time in pool manipulation? Mm -hmm. I was I was covering quarter horse racing again at Lone Star Park in the mid 1990s, and the pool's much smaller at Lone Star for quarter horse racing. And I had a buddy from Europe who uh, had a lot of money, who was uh, very much had become an avid horse racing fan and gambler. And he called me one afternoon, right before a quarter horse card, and he said, "Give me three horses to bet." And so I told him, "Look, I don't know much about quarter horse racing. Yeah, I'm just learning how to handicap it, but I'll give you three horses if you want." And he said, "Good." I'm going to bet 10,000 to win on each one of them. And I said, you can't, you can't do that. And he said, why not? And I said, because that's like half of the entire pool. He said, you, you'd be betting against yourself. And he said, I don't care. I'm bored. I just want to have fun. 
I don't care if I'm betting against myself or not. I, I'm going to do it. So I'm sitting in the press box that night and I forget all about it. And the first horse gets ready to run. And there's some people standing up at the window watching the board and stuff. And all of a sudden, all these screams come out. Oh, my God. Someone just made a huge bet. Dropped this horse from seven to two to even money. You know, happened three times during the course of that night. And, and people around the track were convinced that, you know, there were, uh, I think one guy said, uh, the, the Cowboys have bet, the fix is in. You know, they, they, they were absolutely convinced that there was something nefarious going on when it was actually just a guy uh, who was having some fun. And I happened to be kind of in on it. Now, how did you do of the three horses? How many winners did you get? The first two lost and the third one won. So I, I don't know. I think he might have made a little bit of money on the deal, but he had a lot of fun watching people uh, screaming when the, when the bet showed up. How about the that? The Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association, the PBHA, is running two Pennsylvania bred $75,000 starter allowances for three and up at Penn National the day after Thanksgiving, along with the $200,000 Shamrock Rose Stakes for two-year-old fillies. And based on the interest level that's drawn for those two starter races, there could be the possibility of a Pennsylvania bred claiming crown day in 2023. And by the way, a Pennsylvania bred was successful at the Breeders' Cup. Caravelle running the race of her life to win the turf sprint. She had been entered in the Keeneland November sale, but after that surprise win, she was taken out of the sale and her connections are now opting to race Caravelle. And that's good news in 2023. We'll be right back after this message from the PHBA. Here in Pennsylvania, we're proud of our breeding program, the best in North America, but we're also proud to be leaders in this industry. The PA Horse Breeders Association is funding cutting edge research at Penn Vet to detect gene doping in thoroughbreds. And we endorsed the SAFE Act to help protect the most vulnerable horses. Plus, we're pleased to support the aftercare programs set up by our horsemen's groups. Just a few of the reasons why you should join us in Pennsylvania, the premier place to breed and race. The Green Group Guest of the Week is sponsored by The Green Group, an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry. With over 500 clients in the horse business, they have proven strategies to save you taxes. Learn more how The Green Group can help you at www.greenco.com. And we welcome in now Green Group Guest of the Week, Terry Finley, a frequent guest of the week, one of our favorite people to bring in and help us out with the TDN Riders Room. Welcome, Terry. And boy, what, a, what an amazing 48 hours for Flightline at the Breeders' Cup Classic. You win the race on Saturday. Uh, again, another thrilling, absolutely wonderful race. Um, you were so emotional afterwards when he won. And could you describe the way you were feeling and what caused those tears to flow down your cheek? Well, Bill, I'd say thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I, I've never been afraid to show my emotion. And I, I think a lot of people in the industry like, you know, horses like this. I'm, we've never had one like this. So I, I, I really didn't have a textbook, um, but I love horses. You know, I love the industry. I'm not unlike a lot of other people uh, in our great business. And, you know, I, I thought it was a, you know, like I mentioned to you before the show that my wife had just had back surgery. So I wasn't able to jump around like I usually do. I, I was paying, like my main attention was to her. And I think, I, I think just uh, the crush of, of everything that, you know, all the work that had gone into this beautiful horse and, and he had shown up again and, and he had beat those horses like he did. And, 
you know, all, all grade one winners. So I think just like everything piled into one, I, I just thought it was, uh, it was probably our best moment in, in the business. And on top of that, you know, I was able to share it with my family and, uh, with other people. So, I mean, you put all those things together and if you can't get emotional in a moment like that, I'm not sure you ever can get emotional. <laughs> so, Terry, you said you've never had a horse like this. I think it's pretty safe to say that no one that's in the industry right now has ever had a horse like this. So being in the industry, as long as you have anyone that's, that's even touched the industry knows that there's so much more disappointment and heartbreak in the thoroughbred industry than there are moments of jubilation. So when you guys just kind of take us behind the scenes a little bit that night, Saturday night, what did you guys do to celebrate? How did it go? And did, did John Sadler finally uh, let his hair down, so to speak? Well, we went to Frank and Dino's in, in uh, Lexington. Uh, so full disclosure, our bloodstock agent owns a piece of uh, Frank and Dino's. So, we had a little bit of an in to get a big table, but not that much. We had to wait for quite a while. So I'll, I'll send a word out to Carlo Vacareza on that. But he took care of us, and I, I think there were probably 14 of us. And uh, so John was also at Frank and Dino's, and he had gotten in earlier. And I saw him kind of walking around the corner after he had finished eating, and he was on his way out. And I, I really did. I just stood up. Our whole table just stood up, and you know we all gave him a standing ovation. And I think other people in 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 the restaurant they were trying to figure out exactly what was going on, but it didn't matter. We we owed him a standing ovation, and I could just see I, just the the tension just you know flow out of his body, and and like I knew he was absolutely um, at zero on the energy gauge, um, and he stood and we talked for a couple minutes, and we said the same thing we've been saying to each other for like a year or, or, or a year and a half. I mean, how much we respected him and his team. And, and I, I just thought it was a great way to finish that day is, is, is to give thanks to him. And of course, John, you know, the superstar person he is, you know, he deflected everything and he put it all on flight line, which is, I, I know what we all try to do at every turn. So I think it was as fitting of a way to end a great day as, um, anything I, I could have driven or I could have drawn up uh, in the coach's room. Now, Terry, about 15 hours after he crosses the finish line first, he was retired. Uh, the announcement came out Sunday morning from Lane's End and the entire team. Can you take us through the process of how this developed? Did you guys meet? When did you meet? What was the discussion in the room? How did this all take place? Yeah, so, I, look, Bill, I I um, I figured you were going to ask that, by the way. <laughs> um but look, we, as I said to somebody on, on a Saturday night, we had not discussed it in a formal way. Um, we respected every, everybody in the partnership. And, you know, it, it, I, I will say I had always thought, like over the decades, I'd said, if I ever get one of those, I'm going to be different. I'm going to be different. Well, I think when you, when you take into account, obviously, the welfare of the horse, and you also bring into play, you know, trying to be a good steward and a good player in the horse business overall, right? But also being uh, like a good steward for your partners, right? Because there are two partnerships that are involved in this horse, and there, there, are, there are three individual owners that have all given a lot to the business. Um, but when you put all those things together, 
it gets very complex. I'm comfortable with the decision. I think every single partner, uh, owner and or partner, I think we're all comfortable. Would we have liked to have seen this horse run you know, more and more? Yes. But I do know this. You know, he walked out of, out of the winner's circle with his head high and, and, and a very – I've never seen a prouder horse, man. He, he really likes himself, and, and he walked back to Barn, sit, uh, Barn 60, and the next morning he walked out of the barn and he was proud, and, and I saw him get off uh, of the van at, at Lane's End, and, and he, was, he was just like – I felt so good, and I, I was glad that we went because I, I knew that was – right, that was going to be and is going to be his home for the rest of his life. I'm not sidestepping your question. Look, it's there are a lot of factors that went uh, that uh, that went into it. I fully and we fully acknowledge uh, that there are some other ways to look at it, but we are very comfortable in the spot that we're in and the impact that Flightline has had. I I'd love to talk about it because I when you step back in the light of day, I think he had an incredible amount of impact on our business and, you know, through the athletic, the two athletic stories, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, USA Today, all the blogs, all the videos, all the chatter on uh, social media, like he's had an impact and that impact is going to continue. So when you put all that together, yes, we, we had to make a tough decision. I think leaders, I think they make uh, uh, tough decisions and, and they're, and they're not, uh, Willy nilly, or, or they're not washy washy, um, and I I think the future is bright, especially for Flightline. So I'll I'll lob a little softball across the plate to you here, and and give you a chance <laughs> to talk a little more about Flightline. What's your response to people who say that six races is not enough to make Flightline an all time great racehorse? When I pull myself out of the out of the situation, Randy, I think that foundationally that viewpoint is sound. <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I, you know, um, I, I can't, and I've had discussions with people who I really respect, really respect that have been in the game and have been been big parts and have been leaders. And their outlook is exactly the outlook that you put forth. And I don't argue with them. I say, yes, I wish, I wish you now. Of course, I, I'd like to think that if anybody owned this horse, uh, albeit a, a piece of him like we do, you'd focus on the good things. You'd focus on his charisma and his his brilliance and his undefeated status and the fact that he's given our industry a jolt. Um, but you can't have everything. And that's one thing we would have loved to have seen him run. Um, right. But I even more. Right. <clears throat> But I know he's never had surgery. He's never been an unsound horse. But when you're dealing with a Picasso, as as we've talked about, I know in the in the op-ed, uh, Manganero's uh, Paul Manganero brought it up. I thought it was accurate. Like he's a Picasso. You handle a Picasso differently than you handle uh, an A other than trying to uh, to get to an overnight stake. It, it's just the way it is. Terry, um, going back to – Randy's going to lob the softballs. I'm going to be the tough cop here. Um, and I'll let you go. And I want one more question on this topic. Do you understand why so many people are so upset that the horse was retired? And what do you say to them? I do. I do. 
Um, I think it's, it, I think the connection on that bill is, um, uh, you know, if you, if you look at the body of work and what he's brought to our business, I, I'd like to think that there's more to the plus and more to the positive. And, and there are more planks, if you will, to grab hold of that are on the positive side, on the positive meter, than on the, on the negative side. So, uh, like, again, I don't, I don't begrudge anybody. I don't pin my ears because, you know, I, I said to somebody, if, if every time I saw, um, I saw somebody, uh, and they wrote or they spoke about a particular aspect of flight line and I pinned my ears, it would take away from the joy uh, and, and the, the, the gratitude that we all have to this horse. And I, I do, I think I speak for every one of our partners. We're not going to let that happen, especially when we're dealing with somebody and a horse as special as flight line. So moving on now to phase two, he takes that body of work to Lane's End Farm to begin his next career. How is it, has a determination already been made? I assume it has. How big his book is going to be in year one, and also the different percentages that the owners still maintain in Flightline. How does that work in uh, in his stud career? And to, do you do you each get like, for example? Uh, your group, do you, let's say you own 15% of flight line. Does that mean you would get 15% of the total stallion shares available to do with whatever you want? Or how, take us behind the curtain, so to speak. So Sid Fernando, I, I thought, what about, I don't know, 10 days ago, um, I, I think it was after, after the Breeders' Cup, I thought did an, uh, a superb job I'm delineating this. So it's right. Very simple. I just throw some numbers out and the, the, the mechanics and the structure. There are 40 shares. Um, so we now, after we've sold two, we, we own 12 and a half percent of the, of, of a flight line for his uh, uh, stud career. So that entitles every two and a half percent of the, of the syndicate, uh, of the syndicate, you get a breeding and you also get 140th of the the pool so you basically have have two revenue streams you you can either sell your your breeding or you can use it um and then you know once they 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 uh everybody pays for the the covers that are outside of the 40 shares and the 11 breeding rights everybody else they put into a pool uh and and then you pay insurance and you you pay upkeep and then that is that is split up in into forty parts, and everybody that is assigned or that has two and a half percent, everybody gets their pro rata share. So, look, I, I think back to the first question. It wasn't an easy, easy decision. I can I'll look anybody in in the in the eye because you look at the composition of the partnership, and and you see that we we all love to run, and we're, I'd like to think that we. We've been good stewards. Now that's for you know other people, and I think for history to determine. But I, I do. I think we've always, at every turn, we've looked out for the welfare of of our flight line in every decision that was made. Um, and the vast majority of them, obviously, were made by John Sadler as the the captain of our of our ship. But 
it, like, like it wasn't an easy, easy spot. And I know, Bill, you brought up in your article about our bank accounts. I feel very comfortable. It, it is the proceeds from his standing career will not materially impact any of our standards of living. Um, you know, I, I know this game has given me a lot and, and, you know, I'd like to think I've tried to pay it back, but I'm still going to go to the two year old sales and try to buy horses. Um, to put in front of our partners and I'm still going to be at the Maryland sale at Timonium and I'm still going to be at Saratoga and at, at Del Mar and, you know, at the Triple Crown races, you know, trying to, to support our industry and our business. So I, I, I have to tell you, like, yeah, money's always important. And, and I know people say when it's not about the money, it almost always is, I, you know, like it wasn't going to, and, you know, trust me on this. The thought of, of, you know, seeing him run four or five more times really carried a lot of weight, um, in the decision making process. So how many mares is he likely to be bred to in year one? You think? Yep. Yeah. So he'll, he'll be bred to about 160. Not if it is more, it'll be just a few more. So it's 160 is the, is the projected size of his book. And, you know, I, I, I was laughing because sometimes horses, they, they go and all of a sudden the farm or the, or the, uh, or the stallion masters say, you know, we've, we've got 450 applications, which is usually bogus, but you know, we, we've gotten a great, uh, like a great response. And I think people know it, it's going to take a very significant mare, a pedigree and a race record, um, to get the flight line. And, um, you know, we, we're going to make sure that, you know, he's, I managed as as the you know the the exciting stallion prospect that he is, and I think it it helps um, right to not have you know two hundred and fifty other running around. I I think it's I think that's one of the things that that we we all very very quickly coalesce around the leadership of of uh, Bill Farish, and we've seen the magic of, of our lanes and obviously I'm biased, but there, there, there are a lot of good stud farms, uh, and, um, uh, operations, uh, that are dealing with stallions, but I, I think they do it the right way and, and they give horses a chance, you know, they're not always looking for the new flavor of the day. So we're, we're, we're super excited. Um, you know, we, we've, we've had partners come out of the woodwork that say, I, I want to be part of the next phase, which is really not something that we've had exposure to. So there's a, there, there's a lot of interest in the next phase. And I think it's, it's, you know, it's going to draw people into the breeding side of business and also into our industry overall. So in that respect, I think it's very good. Terry, the share that sold for the 4.6 million, were even you surprised that it went into the stratosphere like that? And then, um, you know, you multiply that by 40 and you come up with the value of 186 million for the horse. Do you think that's accurate or is that a little bit overblown? It's it's overblown, right, Bill? Because you wouldn't find 40, you wouldn't find 40 uh, people that were willing to to give right. both points out. But putting that aside, you know, the, it, I think in when they, they talk about Wall Street, the implied valuation, and when you hear implied valuation, it's usually uh, you know with caveats. But I think it goes back to what we said earlier. The fact that I know it was only two days after uh, like a Breeders' Cup Classic win, but think about that. Think about two and a half percent 
selling for to sophisticated, and there were probably four people, right, four bidders above four million dollars, and and so think about that in what he has brought to the industry, and in this case, the, the you know the auction market. So I think it 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 says like we probably don't and aren't going to be able to gauge the true impact. And I think it's a significant impact on the business for a couple of years at minimum, but you know, he's done a lot of good. And I think that that also comes into my mind when, when I, I think about, or I talk to someone about, you know, yes, we, um, we, we're not gonna have a chance to see him in 23, but that doesn't mitigate the immense impact that he's had. So a couple of quick add-on questions for me, Terry. Uh, first of all, this particular West Point partnership that that has Flightline, how many investors were involved in that partnership? Yeah, there were there were seven, Randy. Okay. So, um, and they all they all bought in early, and it was interesting because um, you know when when Bill Farish and, and uh, Shannon Arvin when they proposed hey, we might have a, a chance to put a metaverse entity together to sell a share. You know, I, I, I said, I'd be happy to, to poll um, our partners. Uh, not every one of them bit. And, and so we cobbled together a little piece from five out of the seven. And the other two were like, okay, that's fine. And, and, and so um, obviously there, there's, there's all kinds of synergies when when you you garner that kind of value or price at an auction. You know his valuation, I think, was raised not to the 184 million dollar level, but all in all, it's good when the market shows that kind of interest. So I think everybody's very happy. And and look, but you know we also run a business, and this is a punishing business in in a lot of respects. People invest their hard-earned dollars uh, year after year. And, and at a certain point, you have to show that it is possible to have a significant return. And, you know, whether you want to call this a, a 184X, I think in some ways it, it, it could be, but this is a substantial return. But you have to show people, at least the, the ones who are looking to invest in the business um, and to get in and to explore opportunities in the business, right? It's it's important to show them that although it doesn't happen a lot, you can see a significant return. So I, I think that's the other part of this that works in the favor of investors. And now you're in a little bit of a different situation, sort of, because, okay, now you've got your seven partners and you've got this super stallion out there and you've got these breeding shares potentially that you could use. So do you guys go out now and, and start collecting a few brood mares to breed the flight line and and get into the breeding business that way and maybe sell them commercially or, I mean, how, how does the future now spin forward? Yeah. Well, I, I talked about the book, right? There are no, uh, there's no book. And I think we've all seen uh, people, you know, get a really good horse and they stand them and all of a sudden they, they buy a lot of mares and all of a sudden in three years, they'd have 100 or 120 or, or whatever. It just exponentially grows. We don't plan to do that. Um, but 
we did buy some mares, really top end mares, uh, at the November sale. And, and th- there was a, a group of partners that came together who weren't in on flight line as on the racing side, but saw, you know, the, the mat, you know, the majesty of, of our flight line and the magic of flight line. So we, we put together some money. We put together a fund, uh, very similar to a, uh, like a private equity fund. And it, you know, we put a five year deal together to see, if, if if our flight line is going to be as good of a stain as a lot of us think he is. Well, Terry, there's more to West Point Thoroughbreds than flight line. You've got a very exciting two-year-old by the name of Signator broke his maiden. I believe he's become a TDN rising star. Uh, what's up for with him and what are your thoughts of, of him going forward as you obviously try to get him to the Kentucky Derby of 2023? Yeah, Bill. So it, it's ironic. You, you talk about that 48 hours in between the the Breeders' Cup Classic and the and the sale of that share, you know, we were probably going to be two to five in in, in uh, the Nashua, and I get a I get a call the next on what that Sunday morning from Shrug McGahey, and he, he said I think this colt just wrenched an ankle, uh, and I I'm not going to run him. So it just was really a microcosm of what we deal with. But right. you know, he's right. fine. He's back to the racetrack, and um, it. In Shug, we trust, um, and so he's at Payson right now, and um, we're excited. Obviously, you know, he showed you know, quite a bit of talent. He's a Tappet as well. Um, we paid a lot of money for him at the at the two year old sale. So, look, you. One of the things I I say to partners is you you just got to keep going in this business. You 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 can't like take a year or two off because that hole in your portfolio and in your operation is going to last for four or five years. So that's what I advise people. You might not have good luck back up a little bit, but just stay in the game. Cause I, I I'd like to think we, we, the, the collective group that own flight line, like we've all stayed in the game and we don't have any magic. Um, we don't have any secret potion, but we all stayed at it. We all kept buying yearlings, kept buying two year olds. We had the, you know, the good fortune, to come together mostly um, at the on the advice of, of uh, David and Gordo and uh, Bill Farish in August of of uh, nineteen, and and so we you know we're we're seeing uh, the benefits and the power of the partnership um, every day now. Terrific. Well, Terry, thanks so much for your insights. Congratulations on all your success with Flightline. Best of luck as he enters his second career at Lane's End. Thanks again for being our guest. Absolutely. Keep up the great work, you guys. The Green Group Guest of the Week was sponsored by The Green Group, an accounting and tax consulting advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry. And as this week's Guest of the Week, Terry Finlay will receive a free one-hour tax consultation. Learn more at www.greenco.com. And we'll be right back after this message from The Green Group. Why do the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisor? We simply save them money and know how to make them more successful. Over the past 40 years, founder Leonard Green has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport. His in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100 or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes.
The TD and Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV, and the XBTV workout of the week took place last Friday at Santa Anita. The Bob Baffert duo of Newgate and Carmel Road worked together. That's Newgate on the outside. They went seven furlongs in 125.60. Both horses last ran in the Breeders' Futurity at Keeneland. Newgate finished fifth after fighting for the early lead. Carmel Road started from post 14 in a 14-horse field. Checked in next to last, finished 13th. No word yet from Baffert about where these two horses might end up next, but the Los Alamitos Futurity is on December 17th at a mile and a 16th for a purse of $200,000. That is at least a possible landing spot for Newgate and Carmel Road. So speaking of Bob Baffert, he's done it again. He unleashed another monster on Saturday at Del Mar uh, after showing off Arabian Night, who got a 97 buyer. That was a $2.3 million Colt. He unveiled Faza, a TDN rising star by Gervin, a $725,000 two-year-old buy, one by three and a half lengths for trainer, uh, excuse me, for owner Michael Lund Peterson. Um, you know, Randy, it's, it's more of the same. We see this, but uh, it looks like, you know, more and more of these really expensive horses that his clients are buying at the sales are all coming through for him right now. Um, you know, 725 seems like a drop in the bucket when you have Arabian Night at 2.3 million. But uh, first of all, what was the, do you know what the buyer figure was on this horse and, and what'd you make of FaZa? Uh, buyer figure was in the mid 70s, which is a bit misleading. That's I don't think that's an accurate yeah. representation of, uh, of the horse's race. First of all, I mean, she won with something left in the tank, clearly. Uh, she was being eased up at the end of the race. So I, I think this is a very exciting prospect, um, despite the buyer figure. Uh, she is the 18th two-year-old maiden to break their maiden, trained by Bob Baffert in 2022 in maiden special weight races. I mean, that's incredible. A mm -hmm. lot of those are from the Avengers, that big group that spends all the money on yearlings that you pointed out. Uh, this particular horse, Faza, owned by Michael Lund Peterson from uh, from Denmark, Baffert jokingly calls him the Great Dane. He's had some top-class racehorses in the past. And what a week it was for Michael Lund Peterson, because he also was the owner of Gamine, who sold on November the 6th. Now, FaZa ran her race on November the 12th. Peterson sold Gamine November the 6th through the Keeneland sale for $7 million purchased by Coolmore while in fold to Quality Road. So a home run for Peterson with Gamine at the sale, and then he watches Faza uh, begin her career uh, with uh, with great style. A, a really well-bred horse. You've got Gervin on the top, who's become, uh, I think, a surprisingly hot stallion. Uh, the damn sweet pistol didn't run too much, uh, ran twice, ran poorly for Todd Pletcher. But she happens to be a half-sister to a horse named Thousand Words, who you might remember was a stakes winner trained by Bob Baffert, best known uh, for flipping in the paddock of the pandemic Kentucky Derby in 2020 and having to be scratched. So there's a lot to like about FaZe and it's a horse that we'll be watching eagerly as, uh, as her career progresses. Another story out of the same race, a uh, first time starter out of Beholder by the name of Tina Ella was in there, uh, got bet, took some money uh, by Warfront, finished six beaten 11 lengths. And it just goes to show you people buying the Gamines and Midnight Bisous and all these superstar 
mayors at the sales. There are no guarantees whatsoever. Uh, Beholder has had three foals get to the races. They are a combined 0 for 7 uh, with no winners with QB1, 0 for 4. Karen with an I, 0 for 2. Tina Elenow, 0, uh, 0 for 1. Um, and Zenyatta, the other great mayor of the era that came out of California, she has never produced a horse that has won a race. Matter most of his horses, one reason or another, did not even get to the races. So, you know, I, I'm not going to give up on Tina Ella after only one start, but um, she showed some speed, which you might not expect from a war front going uh, in a dirt sprint in there. But uh, it doesn't look like Beholder or Zenyatta are, are really uh, going to come through as, as broodmares, Randy. As the old saying goes, Bill, you breed the best to the best mm-hmm. and hope for the best. And the key, well, the key word there in this business is hope. Doesn't always pan out. Doesn't always. Well, they'll live to fight another day. Would love to see, especially Zenyatta, come up with a fold that uh, can make everybody proud. But she's had an awful lot of chances. Uh, Christophe Sulman was back in the news. That, of course, is the jockey who back in um, uh, a while ago in a race in France elbowed another jockey by the name of Rosa Ryan out of the, the um, literally elbowed him out of the saddle and, and, and Ryan went down. He was originally given a two month suspension by the French racing authorities, which looked to be a, like a slap in the wrist and something called the uh, France's gaming police. Apparently agreed with that. They they are now calling for his license to be withdrawn indefinitely or for the suspension to be lengthened. I don't know exactly how that would happen, who has the authority over this. But at the time, I think most of us thought that was a woefully inadequate um, punishment for what he did, which was so dangerous. So um, it looks like uh, they might get him for more than that. And he deserves a lot more. I would give him at least a year, um, especially a two-month sentence at the end of the French racing season, where, you know, most of that two months, he would be on a beach somewhere and maybe Barbados or something. Um, Not much of a suspension at all. At the organization, is called the Police des Jeux, which translates uh, into the... uh, uh, police of the games or the gambling police, and they oversee casinos and racetracks. And they said something interesting. They said that in May, Sumion was asked to modify his risky behavior on the racetrack. Now, this incident with Rosa Ryan happened in September. So apparently, Sumion had been given some advance warning for rough riding. And that sort of plays into this as well. They have recommended. Uh, at least a six-month suspension or possibly the uh, indefinite withdrawal of his license, uh, which is obviously a, a pretty dramatic step. But Sumion will now have to reply, uh, send in a written reply uh, to the police de jour and to the, uh, and to the officials in France, and then they will, uh, they will look at his reply and they'll decide exactly what to, you know, what uh, – policy to take about Christophe Sumion going forward. And there is some precedence to this, obviously, just a week earlier. You remember Pierre Charles Boudot, the champion jockey mm-hmm. in France who ran so well in the Breeders' Cup, who has not been riding because of uh, sexual assault charges. Uh, his suspensions kept getting longer, three months, six months, uh, because the case has still not been heard. And the same organization recently withdrew his license indefinitely. So that's something that happens over there on occasion. And uh, Sumion is now going to have to uh, reply to that and we'll see where it winds up. Randy, you came up with an interesting story. I'll let you take it. Um, A study that shows that horse players are smarter than the average bear. What about that? Yeah. And we all knew that, though, Bill. You and I knew that. Of course. So in Finland, there is mandatory military service for all able bodied young men. 
And when they go into the military in Finland, they are required to take an IQ test. And as part of that IQ test, there's a pretty extensive questionnaire about income, socioeconomic status, education, and things that also include online uh, habits, uh, what you'd like to do in your spare time, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, authorities in Finland, in conjunction with the University of Liverpool, went through 15,000 Finnish men who had taken this IQ test looking for maybe some things that might have flown under the radar that they could that they could glean from all this information. And one of the things that they one of their conclusions was that there was a not just a correlation, a strong correlation between high IQ and Finnish men who liked to gamble on horse racing. Mm-hmm. How about that? Other games of skill as well, like poker. But in particular, they singled out horse racing. Because yeah, and you, and you and I, I'm guessing you probably were the same way as me. And this doesn't mean that we have high IQ. We were probably the exception to this particular rule. But I was first attracted to horse racing because of sort of the problem-solving element and I don't want to say the intellectual element, but the challenge of weighing all the variables in a horse race and trying to figure out, trying to sort through them and trying to figure out who was going to win. It's a fascinating exercise. And it doesn't surprise me at all that someone who's really good at deductive reasoning and problem solving and has a high IQ would be attracted Mm -hmm. to a game like this. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. And that was one of the main reasons I got interested in racing as well. I wonder if uh, they should do another study, the people who like to play slot machines if they're dumb. (laughs) No offense to anybody out there who likes to play slot machines, but we're smarter than you guys. We know that already, don't we, Randy? Okay. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point Thoroughbreds partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie among people surrounding high-class horses like Flightline and stakes action for a fraction of the cost of trying to do it on your own. Learn more at westpointtb.com. Now, West Point has several runners coming up, including two Christophe Clement trainees at Aqueduct, Gal in a Rush, Runs on Thursday in race six, and Phantom Smoke runs in Friday on uh, in race eight for West Point Thoroughbreds. We'll be right back after this message from West Point. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life. Make new friends and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. Backstretch workers are the backbone of the thoroughbred racing industry. Without them, racing would not be possible. The New York Racetrack Chaplaincy provides vital programs and services to all the workers and their families like sponsor a family, the food pantry, as well as other recreational activities and events. You can help by visiting our website and donating today. Every dollar makes a difference to those who give everything to the sport that we love. 
And this week's Remy cartoon is in, and it's a good one. He has a pair of horses trailing another pair of horses. They get to the half mile pole, and the one says to the other, we just cut through the midterms, and we're losing. How about that? Very appropriate for what's going on in the election that was just a couple of days ago here in, in our country. Well, that's a wrap on this week's TDN Writers Room. Thanks for joining us. I want to thank Randy Moss. I want to thank our Green Group guest of the week, Terry Finley. Our producer is Patty Wolf. Our associate producer, Katie Petruniak. Our editors, Aliyah LaRocca. Anthony LaRocca, and of course, as always, our mascot, Lucy. See you next week.